We're reading 2 Timothy chapter 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel... I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know what version she was reading? Well, before I turn to this passage, uh, I want to take just a moment uh, of your time to say what an immense privilege it is for me to be invited back here and to be amongst friends and to have the opportunity to make new friends. I've always appreciated the way in which people have responded to the opportunities that I've been given here. And even this morning, a number of you have expressed great concern over my dress. Um, <laughs> You're, you are going to be uh, sweltered, you will die up there, and we may die out here. And, um, uh, but there is a reason for, for my dress. Uh, five years ago when I was here, and in the lead up to my talk, on the first day I arrived, uh, clothed and in my right mind, uh, nobody else apparently was, so I tried it for the second day, clothed and in my right mind, again, nobody. On the third day, I decided, if you can't beat them, join them. 
And so I ascended or descended, depending on your perspective, into a more casual mode of dress. In the hymn, before I stood up to preach, somebody passed a note forward to me, which I've had in my journal for the last five years. And I'd like to thank you for it. Uh, it says, this is on the Wednesday morning when I have now joined the club. What has happened to your jacket and tie? <laughs> we so appreciated the man of God declaring the word dressed well. <laughs> so, to whoever you are. That's as far as I can go right now. <laughs> but that's because of where the microphone's attached. Well, um, I endorse uh, the book recommendations, and I'll try my very best over the five days not to say very often, as John Stott has said, uh, because that is a remarkably good piece of work. It goes all the way back, I think, to 1973, and uh, it is timeless in its help. It's a help to all of us. I'm not here to inform you from 2 Timothy of things you don't know, but in order that we may, might be reminded of things that we don't forget. We know, I think, that this letter is a precious letter, made all the more precious because by all accounts, it is his final letter. And as you would expect of someone writing a final note to a dear friend, uh, there would be no, tr no uh, extraneous material in it. It would all be foundational and it would all be basic. And indeed, as you read through these four chapters, as I hope you will do in preparation, uh, you will recognize that that is the case. It is a transition moment, not only for Paul and Timothy, but it is a transition moment for the church. From a human perspective, uh, people would have looked at the end of the lives of the apostles and had occasion to wonder, at least to themselves, if not to say to one another, I wonder if the church is going to make it now that the apostles are gone. I wonder what will happen in the post-apostolic church. Interestingly, that's the kind of thing that old people, I've noticed, say uh, at every point in history. And some of you are here today saying, uh, where is John Stott when you need him? And uh, I, I concur with that entirely. I spoke earlier this morning with Eric Alexander. He sends his very best to those of you who remember him. But uh, Bishop Ryle was very, very clear when he was approached on that basis many years ago. Uh, they said to him, what will happen when all of the old people go? He said, rest assured of this, that God has brighter stars in his firmament yet to bring forth. And so Paul, in recognizing that, as if you like the seasoned general, now in jail because of his commitment to the gospel, pens this letter and begins in verses 1 and 2 with a straightforward greeting. In a customary fashion, he is not introducing himself to Timothy. Timothy knew him well. He doesn't need to inform Timothy of his apostleship. But this letter, although it was addressed to an individual, was understood to be a letter that would be shared beyond Timothy. Indeed, it would be enjoyed and uh, understood by those who were under Timothy's care. And you will notice that he begins in characteristic fashion by establishing the relationship that he enjoys with the Lord Jesus. 
which for Paul was a wonder of God's grace, a discovery of God's mercy, and the reality of God's peace. He is, he says, an apostle. He explained this all the time when he was pressed in the occasion of his final speeches at the end of Acts, telling Agrippa the story of how he had been encountered by Jesus on the road to Damascus and quoting the words of Jesus to him, Paul, or Saul as he was then, where Jesus says, I have appeared to you and I am sending you. And so he says, and this is by the will of God. By the will of God, he's been added to this group of apostles, those who have heard the words of Christ, those who have seen the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been promised the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and those who have been charged with formulating and communicating the gospel. And as he says in uh, the Corinthian epistle, that he is now as one untimely born and added to the group. And so it is that the church would have listened carefully to this. We recognize that he was appointed by God. He was not appointed by the church. He was not, as he writes to the Galatians, appointed by men or by any man. That the apostolic authority that was his and that which passes on down through the church is not, as it were, laid on by human hands. And it is, he says, in the context of the prospect of his death that he begins in this way, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Of course, if you think of him in the prospect of his death, you realize just how precious the reality of that would be to him. So, in the greeting, he establishes the authority which is his in and through the work of Jesus, and then he makes clear the depth of his relationship with Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved child. Of course, we know that Timothy was not Paul's physical son. He had become his beloved child in the faith. Writing to the Corinthians, he puts it, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. However, that took place, we do not know, but somehow or another, uh, Timothy, under the uh, tutelage of Paul, under the preaching of Paul, had made personal, had made his own, the kind of material that had been entrusted to him even when he was a wee boy. And to underscore the reality of what uh, Jonathan was just saying to us about the fact that when we listen to the Bible being taught, we can hear the voice of a man, but we do hear, need to hear the voice of God. And uh, Paul uh, understands that and conveys that. And Calvin puts it quite wonderfully when he says, God works through his word when it is made known to us. It is certain that when we come to church, it will not be merely the words of a mortal man we hear. We will feel God speaking to our souls. He is our teacher, and by his secret power, he moves us, that the voice of a man enters us and does us so much good that we are fed and refreshed. And somehow or another, that was Timothy's experience. He had understood the grace of God. He had marveled at God's mercy shown to Paul and also shown to him, and he had been brought into a relationship with God that was one of peace. That's by way of his introduction. And then he goes on, if you're using an, uh, an ESV as I am, 
uh, to give this exhortation, which runs all the way through to the 14th verse. But in verses 3 to 5, he's expressing his thankfulness. Notice the opening phrase, I thank God. Now, let's just remember all the time where he is, that he is in jail. And so, he is not bemoaning his circumstances. The fact that he's in some dismal dungeon with only a hole in the ceiling for any kind of air to be let in and for light to be enjoyed, nevertheless, his opening line is, I thank God whom I serve. And notice, as did my ancestors. One of the things you always notice in Paul is, and especially you get this towards, uh, what is it, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, his great longing for his own people, for the Jews, to come to a knowledge of Jesus as Messiah. And so, this is not just a little filling phrase. I do thank God whom I serve, as did my forefathers. Uh, Paul understood that when a Jewish person is converted, it is not in any sense an act of disloyalty to their forefathers. Rather, it is the fulfillment of all that their forefathers longed for. And so he has in mind here Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I serve God. They serve God. I do with a clear conscience, and I remember you. Uh, Peterson, in the message, uh, paraphrases this, phrase, this uh, verse. Every time I say your name in prayer, which is practically all the time, I thank God for you. Every time I say your name in prayer, which is practically all the time, I thank God for you. What a remarkable thing it is. And many of you are the ones who have names on your list on a daily basis, and only eternity will reveal the impact that has been made as a result of you doing what Paul says he does here for Timothy. I thank God, and I remember you, and I remember you constantly in my prayers. I remember your tears, presumably, as they said, goodbye to one another. Saying goodbye to those whom we love is a tender thing. And you can sense the intimacy of Paul here, that there is, if you like, a tie that unites them, despite the distance, despite the fact that their circumstances are radically different from one another. Here he is. I remember your tears, and I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Now, you can imagine, at least I can imagine, if this was read out to the congregation where Timothy was serving, you can imagine that as whoever read it out, presumably not Timothy, he sat a little higher in his seat as he recognized what Paul was saying. I remember you. I pray for you. I long to see you. And I know when I see you, I'll be filled with joy. Oh, I'm not sure everybody that sees me looks forward to the same kind of reaction. Perhaps it's true for you. And his stature would have grown amongst the congregation as they heard the letter read, saying, if Paul thinks so highly of him, perhaps we should be treating him a little better than we are. And so he says, as I think along these lines, it stirs my memory concerning your faith and concerning the context out of which you've come. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So in other words, we recognize the particular and peculiar role 
that is given to moms and to grandmothers. And in Timothy's case, although his father uh, probably was not a Christian, his mom and his grandmother were. And so he was acquainted with the scriptures, as Paul says later on, since his earliest years. That doesn't happen by chance. Indeed, these uh, ladies would have begun and ended the day within the context of a Jewish home by reciting the Shema, presumably in Timothy's hearing. And they would have ended the day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And these things shall be upon your hearts. And you shall teach them to your children when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And Timothy had that kind of background. And what a privilege it is. We dare not devalue the peculiar benefit of such a background. And we have to seize every opportunity to get all of the good children's books for our children and for our grandchildren. You can find them out there. As I'm reminded of this, I, verse 6, want to remind you too. I want you to be reminded of the fact, Timothy, that this is very important. And here is his first exhortation. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God fan into flame. Now, the the indication is not given to us of the nature of this gift. Obviously, Timothy knew what it was, and Paul knew what it was. And I think we're safe to assume that when we cross-reference this with uh, the first letter of Timothy, uh, where Paul writes similarly to him, do not neglect 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 the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. I'm assuming, and I think we can safely, that Paul is referencing the same thing. And presumably, this has to do with his ordination, his being set apart to the task of teaching and preaching the gospel. But this gift that was sovereignly bestowed has to be personally cultivated. Sovereignly disposed and personally cultivated. Uh, We know, at least I know, of many amazingly gifted footballers who after a very short while never, ever, ever became all that they might have become as a result of God's common grace that enabled them to do what they do. And by their own testimony, eventually they would have to say, I did not personally cultivate it. I did not train. I I lacked in zeal. I did not keep my fervor. And of course, that's what Paul is saying. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So along with the gift given to you specifically, he then points out that given to all of us corporately is a spirit. And you will notice that he defines this in negative terms. He doesn't say it is a spirit of, but rather it is is a spirit not of. And first of all, not of fear, not of fear. Now, most of the commentaries I don't know whether it's true of the ones we've mentioned, but many of them uh, highlight this uh, encouragement to Timothy because of what we find about Timothy elsewhere, namely that he was um, uh, young, uh, apparently he had a a tummy problem, hence the wine, which uh, Dick Lucas always loves to say that the fundamentalist preacher says that is only to be applied externally. And... um, (laughs) 
and, and also that he was somewhat diffident in the company of other people. And so they say, you see, this is why he needs to be reminded of this. And I, and I think that is probably okay, but the fact of the matter is that anybody that is in pastoral ministry for any length of time at all needs the encouragement of being told God has given a spirit, number one, not of fear, not of fear, afraid of people who say things to you. Not the one that I just mentioned, but of people who like to engage in conflict, the fearfulness that comes as a result of crises, which create a sensitivity the routine challenges of pastoral ministry that may appear at times to be almost overwhelming. And so I take it that this reminder of not fear, but rather power, enabling us to keep going so that we don't collapse, and of love so that we can look to the interests of others rather than just to ourselves, so that we have a love that hopes all things and believes all things and endures all things. What he's saying is, Timothy, this is going to be essential because I'm going to go and you're going to be here. And I'm reminding you right now, make sure that you pay attention to this. And this, of course, is leading up to his great concern that the baton of faith will be passed unfailingly into the hands, not only of Timothy, but then others who will follow. And if you think about it today in our contemporary context, both in the United States and here and beyond, it is a great and sincere concern that the gospel, unaffected by the prevailing influences of the age, might find itself securely in the hands of others, and that they might be made aware of the fact that they do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of the necessary self-control, self-control in the secret place, in the private part of our lives, self-control in dealing with others, especially perhaps when we find them more taxing than we ever should. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. We haven't been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And therefore, he says, let me say a second thing to you. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. That in itself, I think, is quite remarkable, isn't it? Do not be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, that is, the message, nor ashamed of me, his prisoner. Uh, Philip Jensen uh, comments that uh, Paul was fast becoming a family embarrassment. You don't think of it really in that way, do you? But uh, who, who have you been spending time with? Well, I spent a time with Paul, the great apostle. Oh, how great is he? Well, he's very great. Where is he? He's in a dungeon. Well, he can't be that great if he's in a dungeon. How embarrassing is that? Do not be ashamed of the message. Do not be ashamed of the messenger. Now, how apropos is that for our contemporary generation? If you look at institutions in the present environment, Institutions that are known to us over the years, whether they be uh, colleges of education or organizations or churches, and you say to yourself, how is it that something that was once so strong, so clear, so forceful, has become what it is? Part of the answer may be traced to an unwillingness to heed this exhortation. It may be traced to the fact that people have become ashamed of the gospel. Once convinced, 
able to speak candidly, very clear in the proclamation, but suddenly they've become hopelessly vague. Now, of course, this isn't unique to our day, and we would be wrong to think that it is. At the end of the 19th century, uh, William Booth of the Salvation Army was asked what his concerns were looking forward into the 20th century in relationship to the church in the United Kingdom. And he replied, in answering your inquiry, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Now, am I wrong or am I just missing it? As we see ministers distancing themselves from the message. Prominent clergy, apparently more concerned about important things, but not the most necessary things. Those issues which are peripheral to the gospel, increasingly becoming central, and thereby that which is central becoming peripheral, giving up on clear biblical instruction. In terms of the gospel, not simply in the story of how a person may come to Christ, but the overarching reality of good news, the good news that God has made the world and made us for a relationship with himself, that sin has entered into the world, and as a result of that, we're messed up. We live broken lives, that God in his great love has come down into our circumstances and provided for us the Savior that we need and the friend for whom we long. And that which we know now, as it were, in temporal terms, we will know then one day. And this is the story that is an overarching story that covers everything. And this is why, of course, we find the pushback so strongly in relationship, for example, to marriage. Because marriage is a creation ordinance. Marriage, in the Anglican prayer book summary, I think it it says, you know, this is not to be entered upon lightly or carelessly, but thoughtfully with due reverence for God and for the purposes for which it was established by God. And of the first three things it says, and lastly it says, it was established for the welfare of human society, which can be strong and happy only where the marriage bond is held in honor. What is that marriage bond? It is heterosexual, it is monogamous, and it is lifelong. And it is an an effulgence from the truth of God's Word, the issues of male and female and biological life, as if somehow or another it was a matter only of our personal preferences. And so here we have to say that under the rubric of this great exhortation, I don't want you to be ashamed of the message, The message where it cuts against where you're living, Timothy, whatever that might be, and all the other Timothys that are going to follow you, so that you may be prepared to stand, not fearfully, but in relationship to the resources that you've been provided with. You are not allowed, Timothy, to rewrite my letters. You are not allowed, anybody, to rewrite the Bible. Therefore, it is no surprise that when he moves from there, he immediately invites him to share in suffering for the gospel. Share in suffering for the gospel. Again, he says, by the power of God. 
One of the commentaries that I read a few weeks ago, and it was written a long time ago, uh, the commentator said when it came to this part, he said, of course, we don't know really anything about suffering the way in which Paul was experiencing it, which is, of course, true. But if you've lived as long as I have, you know that that's been the sort of story when we've come to suffering passages. We've said, well, we need to pray for the church in North Korea. We need to pray for those here and there and everywhere. But now, all of a sudden, if you are prepared in your local news agent, if you are prepared at your golf club, if you are prepared in your ladies' prayer group to actually say, I am not ashamed of the message of the gospel, that there is salvation in only one name, the name of Jesus, and there is no other way in which you can be saved, then don't look for a warm welcome when you arrive next Thursday with your two pushchairs and your seven little children, because it will not be there for you. They are prepared to allow Christianity a place in the pantheon, but they are unprepared, as they were in the Roman authorities, to allow for the fact that Jesus is Lord. We sang it. We stand as the redeemed before Christ, who is the King. You see, a commitment to do as he exhorts Timothy to do here almost guarantees all kinds of suffering exclusion from family gatherings. I have people who have recently become members of my church, and their family, very nice people, are infuriated with them because they've decided that they should go to church. Uh, The suffering that comes by being accused of bigotry uh, instead of the church being recognized now as a force for good. We're no longer a force for good. There is no social benefit to being part of the church. Just look at the buildings. Look at their emptiness. Christians are now seen as the bad guys. In fact, there's a wonderful book. I hope it's on the bookstore. Jonathan will get it otherwise. It's called Being the Bad Guys, written by an Australian gentleman I haven't met, Stuart uh, Stephen McAlpin. And the strap line is, how to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. That's the challenge. That's the challenge he's given to Timothy. You're going to have to live, Timothy, in an environment that is diametrically opposed to what you're saying. And so he says in verse 8, I want you to accept as I do all the hardship that faithfulness to the gospel entails. And you will notice always, and Paul is very, very good at this, constantly when he gives him an indicative, when he gives him an imperative, I want you to do this, he underpins it with the indicative. So that if Timothy's reading this and he's saying under his breath, how am I supposed to do that? He's already answered it. But share in suffering for the gospel, not suffering because you're a jolly nuisance, but for the gospel by the power of God, by the power of God. And then what you have then in the balance of that little section is, if you like, uh, Paul's uh, synopsis of the gospel itself, who saved us, verse 9, He saved us, as we learned in Sunday school, from sin's penalty. He is saving us from sin's power. He will save us one day from sin's presence. And he has saved us, not so we can walk around uh, looking uh, gomlessly up at the sky, but he has saved us and called us to a holy calling that God does not justify any others than those whom he sanctifies. Called to a holy calling is to be called under new management. It is, in C.S. Lewis's terminology, 
to recognize that when we become a Christian, uh, our lives akin to a little cottage. We seem quite content to have discovered uh, the love and goodness of God in that, and we're settling in nicely. And then says C.S. Lewis, a, a group of workmen come and start beating the cottage around and knocking down a wall and repairing this and repairing that. And you're saying to yourself, I didn't think this was what it would be like to be a Christian. And C.S. Lewis says in the metaphor, oh, but you must understand that God's purpose for you is not to leave you as a little cottage, but to turn you into a palace as a fit residence for himself. And it is, as you see in the text, all according to his own purpose and his grace. It's quite wonderful, isn't it, as you go on a little while. And if you're like me, I'm greatly helped, as some of you will know, by hymns and, and songs and psalms. Um, I, I freely confess to being brain dead on the other side of the brain, whatever it is. Um, you know, my report card read things like, Alistair has decided that physics is not for him, and he is very firm in his decision. And uh, so I'm unashamed in that. But, you know, it's not hard for me to grasp a lyric and maybe like you, loved before the dawn of time, chosen by my maker, hidden in my savior. I am his and he is mine, cherished for eternity. According or because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began. James Small, who was a free church minister in the 19th century, is the one who gave us, it's interesting, free church ministers writing hymns. <laughs> but uh, you'll only understand that if you've been to Stornoway. Anyway, um, <laughs> but he gave us, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart, still closely twined, these ties that naught can sever, for I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. That was the 19th century. In the 20th century, a man by the name of Emmanuel T. Sibomana from Africa, as you would understand, a Baptist pastor, actually, from Burundi, he wrote... Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. It loosed me from my bonds and set me free. What made it happen so? His own will, this much I know, set me as now I know, as now I show at liberty. So you got a free church minister in the 19th century and a Baptist minister in the 20th century united in Christ before the world began. What a mystery. It is a mystery, and yet we're not left in the dark, as he goes on to say. It has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Light has come into the world. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. And what had happened then in the historical moment of the incarnation and Christ's death and resurrection has then been entered into existentially, is now experienced in the now, in the gift of salvation itself about which Paul is able to testify and encourage Timothy in that way. And it is that which we look forward to, as he says, ultimately manifested now 
through the appearing then of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Through the gospel. Only through the gospel. You see, you know, we begin by saying, yeah, Timothy is in jail, he's under the shadow of death, and he starts out, I thank God. I'm sure it's not true here, but it is in the States that if you conduct a funeral over which you have absolutely no control, and perhaps the people are uh, beyond uh, your influence and your um, ability to direct them, it's not uncommon for the funeral song to be, I did it my way. Now, can you imagine anything more bizarre in all your life where we are there, often with an open coffin, and either through the PA or through some poor soul, is entrusted with the words. And may I say, not in a shy way. Oh, no. Oh, no, not me. I did it my way. I'm looking there. I'm going, so how did that get you? How are you doing? (laughs) We have a story to tell, a story of life, a story of immortality. It's not simply the immortality of the soul, but it is the resurrection of the body that we have an opportunity to speak into this world that is confused for sure, broken by its own testimony, to speak lovingly, carefully, directly, forcefully, if we may, and yet to tell them, this is the greatest adventure you could ever know. You see, essentially, this is an evangelistic book, Second Timothy, because Paul's great concern is for the gospel, that the gospel will be so laid hold of by Timothy, so passed on carefully by him, so shared widely by the coming generations that the whole world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, I say to you, it's small wonder that he pens this wonderful phraseology. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And who's writing that? Paul. Where is he? In the dungeon, presumably He holds his pen, if he does, in a manacled hand. And then in verses 11 and 12, we essentially have Paul's testimony. He picks up what he had used by way of his introductory greeting. It was for this, he says, this gospel that I was appointed as a preacher, or as I think it was the NIV that was read earlier, as a herald, same thing, So in other words, he's not simply thinking about what is happening as I am doing here in terms of preaching behind a box, but heralding the gospel. And he heralded it everywhere he went. Every opportunity he had, he took it. The lecture hall of Tyrannus uh, on Mars Hill amongst the Athenian um, eggheads. And all the time he understood what he was doing. I have been set apart. I, in the reality of God's goodness, have been given this peculiar responsibility so that I might write down what is the very word of God. He preaches. And people always say, well, he was preaching, but he wasn't teaching, or he was teaching, but he wasn't preaching. Well, I don't think it is really possible to to do that if you're doing either part correctly, because surely preaching, if we want to distinguish it from teaching, is just teaching plus application. It is, if you like, Uh, the didactic element, laying down what is, with the hortatory aspect of it, saying, and so this is what it involves. 
I don't know if you have heard of the conversation with the late uh, John Murray of Westminster Seminary, who was in conversation with a friend in the Highlands of Scotland, and he was teasing his friend, and he said to him, what is the difference between preaching and a lecture? And the friend tried a few uh, answers, and none of them uh, met the requirements of the Westminster professor, and he said, no, you haven't got it at all. He said, preaching is a personal, passionate plea. His companion said, in what sense? He said, in this sense, I beseech you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And of course, those are the very words of Paul himself. He was a preacher. He taught carefully, explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus had done, and what they must do in order to be saved. And again, he comes to it. And this is one of the themes that runs through these whole four chapters. I have preacher, apostle, teacher, and then again, listen, which is why I suffer as I do. He fulfills his calling and he endures suffering. Because ultimately, the undeserved freeness of the gospel is an offense to human pride. It is offensive. It is offensive both morally, because it's saying to people, you mean I can't be good enough myself? That's what the Bible says. It is offensive intellectually because they say, you can't possibly expect me to believe these kinds of things. To tell people that the story of the Bible says that by nature we are unworthy of God, we are unfit for heaven, and we are unable to rectify our condition is offensive. To announce the indispensability of God's grace and to share clearly and kindly the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus Christ is to face suffering. And if we wish to avoid it, then simply leave that out of the message. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, Paul says again, and I've told you that you shouldn't be ashamed, and I want you to know that I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed, because what has been entrusted to me, God has under his care. I listened very carefully, because I quickly picked up that, uh, is it Lucy was reading? Yep. Uh, Lucy read so beautifully, but she read, I think, probably from the NIV. And if you listen carefully, you would notice that the NIV translates that differently from the ESV because the NIV uh, suggests that what uh, Paul is saying here is that what I have entrusted to him, namely myself, my life, and my ministry, I am absolutely convinced that he will guard against that day, which is true. The ESV translates it, you will notice, I'm not ashamed for I know him I believed, and I'm convinced that he wills to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me, not what I have entrusted to him. So the translators of the ESV are saying that what he's referencing here is the gospel. The translators of the NIV are saying that what he's referencing here is himself. Well, of course, that's an easy one because both are true. And uh, if someone asks you whether you uh, go with the ESV or the NIV, simply say yes, and you will be right on track. In the face of great conflict, just read church history. The gospel light may flicker. As it is flickering right now, 
there's no question that it is a flicker. Um, when I first encountered Second Timothy, it was in a Bible that was given to me as a 15-year-old boy because I was leaving Scotland to England. Can you believe such a thing to do to a 15-year-old boy? And they gave me a Bible, and in it was inscribed 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the, world of, the word of truth. That in 1967 was a very different Glasgow from the Glasgow that I left yesterday afternoon. The gospel light may flicker, but will never be relinquished. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my word will not pass away. And so notice before we all pass into the realm of melting, verses 13 and 14. This is my testimony, verse 11 and 12. And Timothy, let me remind you of your responsibility. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. What are those sound words? Well, if you want to cross-reference, go to the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And um, that will be as helpful as any. The pattern of sound words. Sound words or healthy words. It's a a throwback to an earlier era. Most young people will not understand if somebody said, I I don't know if he was sound or not. Uh, But if you have the unfortunate privilege of coming out of my background, you will know that exactly. It brought home to me one time when I was preaching at the Young People's Convention in uh, Londonderry, uh, which was presided over by a very elderly man, probably about the age that I am now. And, um, (laughs) And he was a fine man, and I loved him dearly. And we would pray before the session began. And it was a very hot, like this, uh, Methodist church. And it, it, was, it was tough going. And I noticed, as I got up to speak, that I wasn't into it five or six minutes. And, and T.S., for that was his initials, T.S. Mooney, he was already in the third stages of anesthesia. And... Uh, and I thought, well, he's an elderly man. That's okay. And, uh, I'll, uh, but I didn't feel, I, you, you can't rebuke an older man. And so I, I got through Monday. Tuesday, he did the same thing. By Wednesday, when we were driving home together, I said to him, T.S., you are distressing me. You come in the prayer time. You pray, Lord, bless the word, and all those usual things. I look out. You're sound asleep. He said, well, it's just this. He says, I just stay awake to see if you're sound. And when I know you're okay, then I just go off for a wee snooze. (laughs) So Paul says, I want to be able to fall asleep, Timothy, with you preaching, knowing that you have been following the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me with the faith that you're going to need, Timothy, to do this, and the love which you're going to need to pursue those who clearly are disinterested in what you have to say, many who are radically opposed to the story you're going to tell, with the faith and the love. Ian Murray writes, the people who sweeten the churches are those taken with, captivated by the love of God for sinners. Persuading men of God's love is the great calling of Christian ministry. Again, perhaps Timothy under his breath says, and how am I going to do this? And he says, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, you guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 
Keep it. Keep it to hand. Believe it entirely. Share it widely. In a context where people are fascinated by novel ideas and ideologies, in a context where mythology begins to take a hold and even dark elements of that take hold in Ephesus and in Edinburgh. With the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus, you need to do this. Because I'm going to go on and tell you, Timothy, that I was doing this and there was a wholesale desertion in Asia. They deserted me and they're going to desert you. So guard it, Timothy, and guard your heart, guard your life, guard your doctrine, so that your life speaks to the testimony of the good news you convey. And from there, God willing, we can pick it up tomorrow at verse 15, a brief prayer. So Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us for your son's sake. Amen.